Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a series of podcasts to help you build your resilience for a better life, both at home and at work. In fact, we're going to help you get your bounce back. There are lots of different subjects, people and tools and techniques across this series, so please feel free to subscribe. Information can be found at personalresilience.com and you can access other goodies and online courses and coaching as well as today's show notes. In the meantime, please enjoy today's podcast. So today we're talking to Patrick Waller. Now, Patrick's someone I've known for a long, long time and is someone I've been really keen to um, podcast with, primarily because we talked to his daughter back in episode six, there was, I think it was, when we talked to her about running 73 million marathons in every part of the galaxy and having um, many records set between her and her father for doing these wild and crazy things. So it's quite rare to meet um, someone like Patrick who is actually a financial planning consultant, not any old financial planning consultant, quite a super, super duper one. And we're going to talk to him today about him and his life and company and such like, and but particularly about financial resilience and um, and what that is and what that means. And, and, you know, hopefully you'll get some takeaways from that and be able to think about perhaps some sort of financial planning strategy for yourself in order to build your own financial resilience. So, Patrick, hi. Good afternoon. How are you, Russell? I'm good. I'm very good indeed, Patrick. Tell me, tell me, how do you describe yourself? If you met someone at a um, business party or at a business meeting or something, or a, you meet someone for the first time, how do you describe what you do? Well, devastatingly good looking is usually top of the list. Indeed. Six foot four and with a limp. But apart from that, no, these days I tend to use the term financial planner because one of the problems of our industry these days is that so many people, uh, particularly one of the direct sales organisations, they label themselves every uh, as wealth managers, and uh, half the time they're not really wealth managers at all. They're still financial advisors dressed up as something else. Detect the note of cynicism in the voice. But what we do is what I call proper financial planning, uh, as opposed to uh, going out flogging products and ISAs and pensions, which is desperately boring. And so that's what you see as the difference. One is um, a sort of a push sales approach where you're you've got a bunch of things you want to sell and you're, and you're sort of saying it's, you've got a different approach to that. Yeah, it's becoming more, the, the traditional approach, uh, bear in mind that I've, I've started in this business 36 years ago when I started with Prudential and started my business 31 years ago. The traditional approach, going back to the dim and distant depths of time when dinosaurs roamed the earth and there was no such thing as the Financial Services Act. In the traditional approach those days was, well, have a pension, have a, well, there wasn't much else. There were pensions and savings plans and pets and ISAs didn't exist. And it was really very, very product-driven. And in some areas of the industry, it's still very product-driven. And one of the things that goes on a lot is that people think that wealth management is all about managing the funds and choosing the best funds and making the best returns, which is important. But to us, that's really not, not what it's about. Um, so our view is that proper financial planning is what it's all about, where... You take this bunch of disparate investments and pensions and so on, and then I push it all to one side of the table and say, well, that's all very well, but what do you want it to do? So you're sort of taking a, almost a life planning approach, I guess. Is that right? Yes. It's life, traditionally, one of the most the easiest ways to look at what we do is, is we call it the three hats approach, right. which I must admit is a label that I stole from somebody else who's well-known in the industry. 
But the, the three hats are, first of all, the life planning uh, business. And I don't mean that we start using NLP and coaching and, and so on. We start saying to people, well, well, what do you want to do? So, for example, I had a chap come into my office uh, about two years ago, and he didn't actually do business with us, which was a real shame. Uh, but what he really wanted to do was to, his big thing in life, that was he wanted to be a commercial helicopter pilot. And I kept saying to him, well, can you afford to be a commercial helicopter pilot? And he would need to take about two years off work. and to, But he had enough money to do it. But he kept talking about the, fund, the performance of his pension funds. And I said, well, that's not really the point. And in the end, he kept talking about fund management and so on. And I said, well, that's not really what we do. What we do is I want you to become a commercial helicopter pilot and to make sure that you can afford it. And there's all sorts of things that people want to do. So, so our view is find out what you, you want to do as a life plan, whether it be retire early, which is very common, send the children to private school, be able to give the children some money, help them buy a house, go on cruises, all that kind of stuff. We, we need to dig under the surface and find out what people want to do with the stuff. Yeah. Then after that, we put together a plan that helps them to achieve that. And right down the back end is, is product. Yeah, that's interesting. It is a different sort of approach. I mean, it's common sense when you say it like that, but uh, I'm guessing that not everyone does it that way. Not everyone. To, to be fair to the industry, there are more and more people that are working this way, but there's still there's still a lot of the industry, and I'm quite cynical of the industry because I've been around a long time, but there's an awful lot of smaller firms of advisors that will say to you, oh, yes, well, we, we do fund management and we have a quarterly committee meeting about which funds to use and They'll turn up once a year and tell you how well your investments have done. That's not everybody, that, but that's a significant number. Uh, but our view is, well, number one is a small firm of advisors can't compete with the big boys in terms of investment expertise. But that's not really the point. Mm. The point is, what outcomes do you want to achieve? So typically it's going to be retiring early or, and all the things that I've mentioned, buying, I've had, what have I had? I've had buying a Maserati, Lamborghini, round-the-world cruises, yachts, uh, one client did want to buy a helicopter, and all these sorts. So what do you want the money to do? And then you fit the plan to it, rather than here's, here's my investments, tidy them up, and flog a load of products. Sorry, I'm a bit cynical, sounding a bit cynical there, but that's still a common approach in the industry. How do you, how do you know if an IFA is any good? Are there sort of charter marks or things you should be looking for? The things you should be looking for, chartered is a good place to start because if somebody's chartered, and there are quite a few of us now, I think it's knocking on the door of 4,000, which is really, really good news. But as far as I'm concerned, chartered should be the minimum standard. But also differentiate between a firm, a firm that is chartered and an individual that's chartered. If, if the firm is chartered, then there's a, a culture of uh, lots of professional development within the firm, you know, that everybody within the firm is committed to professionalism, it does actually mean something. Uh, but you sort of also, if you're shopping around for an advisor, we, we always say to people who come and see us, go and interview some. Go and interview some. Go and see three or four and ask them how they work. Mm. And then and use, your, use, your, um, use your own intelligence because people are pretty bright. But also, very importantly, I always say to people, look, would you like to speak to some of our existing clients? And we don't set them up and bribe the existing client, but would you like to speak to two or three of our existing clients? So do your research, go and see a few, ask them for, for uh, testimonials, can they speak to existing clients, ask to see specimen financial plans and so on to see how they actually work. 
So that that's what we always recommend to people because because we're not for everybody. I get that. Yeah. yeah. In the same way that not everybody likes the same mix of cars. Yeah. And it may be that our style doesn't suit you, but but that's fine. It doesn't matter. We know what we do. And we know what we do it well. Yeah. And I've got plenty of clients that have retired and are having an absolute ball in retirement, spending all their money, and quite frankly, having a giggle. Uh, I, I love it when clients retire and I ask them, how's it going? And they just smile and say, it's fantastic. And then I say to them, well, do you miss work? And they say, no, nope, not for a minute. And, and that's that's what I enjoy. That's that's what I get a kick out of. Yeah. And we'll come back to that in a minute because I think that's really interesting because I think most people, most people would want that. Um, but let's just let's just turn a, turn a track for a minute and just continue around you because you said you started your business thirty one years ago. Um, yes. And one of, one of the things I find interesting about you is that you're not just a, um, a geeky financial guy. You're actually entre- an entrepreneur as well, aren't you? Because actually you are a proper business owner. And um, I've enjoyed some of our conversations just because you know we'll we'll meet up in a pub sometime and we'll talk about doing business. And um, and I think people. Want to know the person behind the firm, as it were, and um, you know what? What do you think are the what do you think are the two or three things that really make a successful entrepreneur? I mean, what do you think? What do you think that's about? Would you successful entrepreneur? There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that, that successful entrepreneurs need to have a, a, a very very specific goal and vision, because without a specific goal and vision, you've got no idea what 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 you're working towards. So. So, for example, I, I have to admit, when I started the business, I, I, I was, uh, well, quite frankly, poor. Um, I had a, 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 four, a two-year-old, was it a two-year-old, 1985? Yeah, a two-year-old daughter. What back then was a huge mortgage of £30,000. Uh, no money, no clients, and a £1,250 car loan. But I knew that I wanted to earn a specific amount of money by a specific time. Uh, so I set about it. So you have to have a goal and a vision, yeah. and and then also figure out how you're going to do it. Because, in fact, one of the, my um, favourite books of all time, which is an absolute classic for anybody starting a business, and I think that there are only two or three business development books that I particularly like, and I think many of them are copies of of the original. Uh, and the original book that I read and used, and which works to this day and is still relevant is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, written in 1929. I think it was 1929. And he interviewed, the work that he put in to produce that book was extraordinary. So he tells the story of Thomas Edison, who wanted to invent the light bulb. And he tried 10,000 times and failed, but he he knew he could invent the light bulb. Um, Henry Ford, he said to his engineers, we want you... Uh, I want you to um, cast an engine block for a V8 all in one piece. And this engineer said, can't be done. He said, well, I don't really care. It's got to be done. Mm. And in the end, it was. Or Andrew Carnegie, who invented the the great United Steel Corporation out of, was it Andrew Carnegie? Yes, it was Andrew Carnegie, had the idea of, of the United States Steel Corporation. And wait, bear in mind, this was in the 30s, and the United States Steel Corporation was born out of an amalgamation of, um, well, all the existing steel corporations that were fighting against each other, their duplicate workforces, duplicate systems, and, they, and Andrew Carnegie had the idea to lump them all into one, into one um, corporation, and that single idea made him $100,000, mm-hmm. $100, sorry, $100 million, yeah. and this was back in the 30s. So all of these hugely visionary people, 
And, and Napoleon Hill gives a very, very specific process, uh, which, which I think in, in many ways was the birth of modern NLP. Right. So he was way ahead of his time. Uh, the other one, which was um, uh, an excellent book, which, which I think is a classic, is Michael Gerber, The E-Myth. And that's to me, is a classic work about uh, the difference between being self-employed and having a business. Yes. And some of the principles he, that, that are in there, so for example, if you're, if you're going to start and build a business, build a business that you can sell. Yes. So if your business is not saleable, then, well, quite frankly, you don't have a business. So what do you need to do in order to build a business that is saleable? Mm. Or it, it's repeatable. What, what's, what's fascinating at the moment, I don't know what you think about this, is that entrepreneurialism has become a real fad, hasn't it? And people are going into it without any of the key skills and toolkits. And I know people I talk to say it's actually better to be number 73 in Facebook than it is to be running your own business. Because if that's your skill set, you're better off in the place you should be. And and I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because in business, you see the sort of drive towards people you know, having their own businesses. And I, I don't think many people realise how tough it is. It's a lot of work, isn't it? It's a lot of work, and I, I uh, without getting the violin out, my, my own experience, I was, I was working for several years, 50, 60, sometimes 70 hours a week, but I didn't care because I enjoyed it and I was driven. So yeah, it is hard work, but it's the old expression I like is, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Mm. And, and so yes, there are people who hit on the, on the seam of gold and so on, but in general, Hard work is, is, is part of the is part of the equation, and of course you're going to get the odd exception who hits on a great piece of software that they sell for multi million pound fortunes. But the, I don't know what the statistics are in businesses that fail, but it, but it's a lot. Yeah. A lot of businesses fail, and, and also I, I get irritated by uh, overuse of the word entrepreneur. If you start up YouTube, you get some guy sitting on a beach somewhere saying, "I'm an internet entrepreneur." So that anyway, that's <laughs> that's a personal thing. Well, I mean, there's there's that there's like quite a lot of evidence now. People hiring cars and bringing in women and money and taking loans, putting money on the bed, and the next day taking it all back and putting it in the bank and taking the cars back because you know it's just a myth. I don't think people realise that you know being an entrepreneur isn't all as cracked out of it. And sometimes being an entrepreneur, you look at people who are salaried employed, um, who you know who got final salary schemes. Who, who work equally hard, I mean, people work as hard, um, but they can come out with a, with a vast sum of money and be extremely comfortable and not have had, and have had many more benefits than an entrepreneur. So it doesn't matter which way you go. I mean, some of it's about finding your life's purpose. The key is about making the most of your money whichever route you're coming in. Because entrepreneurs can sell their business, as you said. But, I mean, you know, if we don't have a business to sell, at the end of the day, you might have no business and no pension. Whereas if you're working, you might end up with a magnificent pension. And, you know, that can be great as well, can't it? Yeah, I remember when, when I started my business, which way, way back in 1985, I left the Prudential, who I worked for, uh, on the Friday. And then on the Monday morning, as I was driving right down the road, I remember looking at the road and thinking it looked like a desert because I had nobody to go and talk to, yeah. no clients and so on. And I, I remember thinking very clearly that, that simply having the security of a job to go to on Monday morning was worth money. Yes. I wake up on Monday morning, I, feel, I don't feel like working and I feel a bit miserable and I've had a rubbish weekend with the wife or whatever. I can still go to work and still get paid, but if you're 
self-employed or running your own business, that's not an option. You just have to get out there and, yes. and you have to carry on. I mean, and certainly I get asked a lot, you know, would you need to be more resilient to be an employee or uh, an entrepreneur? And, you know, there are some pretty rough jobs out there. And, you know, sometimes as entrepreneurs, we have the, you know, the sort of the, the balances as well. And I think it's a different sort of resilience you need, isn't it? And, um, you know, I think you need a, diff a different way of thinking about the world to be entrepreneurial. And actually, there's there's no there's no crime in either. The point is to make the, mo the to make the best of both. Actually, is it or either? Well, my one of my philosophies, my the book I wrote, it's got the title "Life's Too Short." And one of my philosophies on, of life is that life is just way too short. And, and I meet people who are in jobs that they they either don't like or they despise. And I just say to them, "Well, what are you doing?" So, in the context of financial planning, I say to people, "Well." Suppose we can take all of your pensions or assets or, or whatever and put it together in something so that you don't need to earn as much. And one of my clients, and it's a true story, he, he worked at, um, uh, at Air Canada, as it happens, and he was, he was reasonably senior, but he no longer worked with his hands. He was an aircraft engineer, and he loved working on aircraft. Yeah. And throughout this period of time, he, he got to, I think he was about 59, and he was due to retire at 65, and he hated his job. He hated the drive to Heathrow. He hated the shift work. He was a manager. He didn't work on aircraft anymore. So I said, well, just suppose we could work out a way where you didn't need to earn the salary you're earning. You know, I did my financial planning bit using the, the tools and methods that we use. And in the end, I worked out that he could earn he could earn about twenty thousand a year, and he was he was earning about forty or fifty thousand working for the airline. But if we did certain things, he didn't need to earn as much. So he resigned and left, much to the uh, shock of Air Canada, who were really surprised. And then he went and got himself a job working for a retired airline captain. Oh. He he was repairing uh, his farm machinery, uh, jobs around the commercial property, and one of the things that he did. I bumped into him at Reading Service Station, and he was with the airline captain, his new employer, and I said, oh, where are you off to? And he had a big smile on his face, and he said, we're just going to pick up the microlife, my boss, that I'm going to build. And I've got photographs. There's a video on my website of, um, of the microlife that he built. So that's kind of life-changing stuff. So I think, it's, I think it's sad if people are in jobs that they just don't like or they just don't enjoy yeah. And similarly, if people are in businesses and they're, they're not making any money, they're not enjoying it, what's the point? And it's funny, isn't it, because you often meet people who are in jobs with secure jobs, you know, secure jobs, uh, final salaries, all that sort of stuff, and they just don't know they can move on because no, they've never no, consulted anyone. They've never, they've never done the, you know, they've not, you know, they've not done the work to find out the facts. No, they don't. There's a, another case, which is these are all real. Uh, one of my clients, this was in 2009, she worked for one of the big accountancy firms, one of the real big guys. And I, in 2009, I, I did all my stuff that I do. And I said, well, you can pack up now because they had loads of money, they had big pensions and plenty of money invested. So I said, well, you can pack up now. And this was when she was 54. And... Um, she said, no, I'm going to carry on working, carry on working. And two years ago, she, I got an email on a Monday morning. And she said, I've just been diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Oh, dear. Yeah. So she ended up having chemotherapy on, on her esophagus and uh, all of the plans for retirement, which was lots and lots of traveling to Tanzania and safaris and all that sort of stuff. 
she um, she spent she wasn't able to do it. And one of her uh, when she uh, came to her, into our office, luckily she's she's in, in good shape now, but she can't do what she used to. Her husband said to me, and I quote. I wasn't expecting to spend the first 12 months of my retirement driving her backwards and forwards to the Royal Marsden. Yeah. And that break, genuinely breaks my heart. Yeah. To, to, she, she enjoyed her job, but anyway, that, that's part of what we do. So, so life is too short, and everybody listening to this podcast will know people yeah. who got ill, who got cancer in their 50s or even 40s. And my view is just life's too short. Life's too short for that. And but that's, that's what I enjoy doing. And people have a, a peculiar, some people have a peculiar relationship with money, don't they? There are people who, I mean, the money is the end goal. And, and they don't realise money is the thing to work for them. They're not working for money. The money should be working for them. And, yeah, money's a means, not an end. Yeah. And people seem to lose sight of that from time to time. I think especially when the more stressed you get, the more hyped up you get about change, the more you sort of focus on what appears to be tangible, and that seems to be money. So before we get into... Um, some generic strategies. First of all, we're going to say that you're not going to give any sort of advice here and such like, you know, you, you, it's good, good, just good common sense. And on our website, we just, you know, have a sort of financial caveat about this. But let's start at the beginning and say, what are the classic mistakes you see people making? Top of the list, almost without exception, people have got absolutely no idea how much they spend each month. Really? Simple as that? Absolutely amazing. Because the, the way that we work is we, we always we use uh, pieces of kit, electronic kit, software, we like. Uh, and one of the things that we always want to know is how much people spend. Right. And then what, what they do is they give us a list of what they spend. And then I put it into our piece of kit. And, and when we're going through our planning session with them, we say to them, right, based on the information you've given us, you should have... I don't know. Let's use a, uh, an example out of thin air. You should have £1,500 a month left over every month. Right. Have you got £1,500 a month left over every single month? And if it's a husband and wife, it usually goes very quiet. And they look at each other and they say, no. And then my answer, then I say to them, well, where is it then? And then they say, well, we don't know. And I say, well, do you think it might be a good idea if you did? So point. So what happens then is that we start to, and it, it's it's what's sometimes called the latte habit. So it's the takeaways, it's the bottle of wine, it's the money out of the cash pot, and that's okay. That's not a problem. But what's important is that you know that it's the latte and the takeaway and the money out of the cash pot, because it's only when you know what you spend that you can start to get a handle on any kind of financial planning. It sounds really simple and it's really basic. I would say that's the number one issue that people people face. Okay, so that's number one. What would be the next biggest you you see? People have not got no idea what they actually want to do. Really? Uh, they quite often you say, "Well, what do you want all the money to do?" And, and quite often they look blankly at you. Quite often people do know what they want to do. And top of the tree is is retirement at a particular age. That's that's a very common thing that we deal with. But quite often people, say, I say, "Well, okay, when you retire." What are you going to do? Um, because you can only go on so many holidays and people get bored. What do you want to do? What's, do you want to get involved in mentoring? Do you want to get involved in charity work, University of the Third Age, uh, taking up um, old hobbies and all that kind of thing? So people haven't really thought about what they want to do with that extra time. Right. And that's important because you need the money to be able to fund that lifestyle, I guess. 
Yeah, because what we have to do is we have to say, well, okay, that lifestyle is going to cost you X. So we've now got uh, these assets over here, which can be oh, pensions or investments or money in the bank. So then we need to make all of that lot work in such a way that it provides the outcome, which is the lifestyle that they want. And, um, and I'm guessing these days that the cost of um, palliative, not palliative, um, care home, residential care homes and such like in your final years might be one of those unexpected shocks when people really don't realise how much they are. Um, yeah, they, a lot of people got no idea. Well, surprisingly, people do often know that it's expensive, but typically uh, you need to be thinking of about £1,000 a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, but a ballpark figure is a thousand pounds a week, not a month, a week, so 50,000 a year for care home fees. Uh, there was a thing called the Dilmot Report that was uh, looking to cap care home fees uh, that would be paid by the individuals, but number one, it's, it's not really coming to effect, and number two, uh, it's, it's not that helpful. So care, but care home fees is one of those things where we say to people, are you bothered? Does it bother you? Are you concerned about it? And then you can build that into your planning. So um, that's interesting. So it's one of the mistakes that you classically hear about financial resilience that you don't stop saving early enough. Is that still something you see? Yes, very commonly. Uh, I saw a chap recently who um, was earning a reasonable income and he just didn't have enough money. <laughs> it, really, it really is that simple. And, and quite often I'll say to people, look, if you want, and I'm plucking figures out of thin air, if you want the lifestyle, I can think of an actual example that a client saw uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I said, if you want the lifestyle that you say you want, at the age you say you want it, you need to be saving about £40,000 a year. Wow, yeah. And at that point, he fell off his chair, and his wife turned pale, and I said, look, there's no good, my job is to let you know now, that's what you need to do to get to the other end, there's no point you getting there and then you turning around and suing me because it hasn't worked. Yes. My job is way, way ahead of the event to put a plan in place to make sure you get the outcome you want. Yes. And if, if that use is unpleasant, so be it. Yeah. It's better you know now than two years before you retire. So yeah, there's plenty of people who suddenly have a real wake up call and realise they just haven't done, done enough early enough. So what happens to people or what, what do you find is the so, for example, you, you, I meet it's a certain age thing, isn't it? You meet people in a certain age that got divorced, and they've ended up with you know drastically affected pensions, or because of some sort of divorce split, or they've got no money at all. I mean, so you can sometimes end up in your fifties with virtually nothing. So, what can that sort? What can you actually do about that? You all you can do ever do is work with what you've got. So, when it, again, that's where proper financial planning comes in because what. So then, it, because quite often the, the Western concept of retirement planning is I'll work, 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 and then one day I'll retire and then I'll put my feet up and then have fun. Yeah. But you're, you're, because people haven't saved enough, you're seeing a lot, <laughs> I'm going to say quite a lot of them end up pushing trolleys around supermarket car parks. Yeah. Yeah. But, and that's probably not going a little bit too far, but you will see or are seeing a, a, an increase in people who are working part-time, doing a bit of consultancy. Uh, I met an, an accountant yesterday who's a, a new client to us, and he's had to go back to work because he put forth children through private school. So he's had to go back to work. So you're seeing part-time working, consultancy, um, and also putting down equity from people's houses. So equity release is becoming 
uh, a big market now where people just don't have enough money. They're asset rich and cash poor. Yeah. Post divorce, unfortunately, it's, it's the same stuff. You got divorced. It's a fact. So all you can do is work with what you've got. Right. Quite often, people just have to. People think, oh yes, I retire at fifty-five or sixty, and a lot of the time, it's just not realistic. And you have to uh, get realistic and start saying, look, the chances of you packing up at sixty-five are. X, yeah. unless you do this, and if you can't afford to do that, you're going to have to work part time or retire later. So, so part of your approach then is to be pragmatic, but also realistic, isn't it? Because, so in other words, you have people who have fantasy ideas about what they want to do. Yes, and yes so, that's true. So that's interesting because you were saying things like, "Well, I want to be a pilot," you know, and and I wished I'd just carried on being a pilot because I, I could have done anything. But actually, when people get to a certain age, that those choices do limit themselves by the runway of their ability to earn but also you know you know you can have something that is literally a fantasy something they want to do all their lives well actually why don't you do it straight away and almost you know seed it into your life as you go rather than stopping and retiring as you go afterwards i think that's what you're really saying and you've also talked to me a lot you mentioned this woman earlier about these the cancer thing that people the work and work and work think they're going to stop but they don't they die and of all those things that they wanted to do, they didn't do in the first place. Yeah, well, that'd be moving across into into the resiliency you deal with, where it's one of the most common ages for people to to die is within two or three years of retirement. Yeah, because because their their life force, if you like, is wrapped up in work. Yeah, and so it's really important for people to start way ahead of retirement. Say, well, what are you going to do with yourself? It's all very well having all this leisure time. There's a guy called Tim Ferriss who wrote a really famous book called The Four Hour Work Week. Which is, a, I think, is a cracking book, and he talks about the the, the concept of uh, of um, uh, having long term sabbaticals, so taking three months off, six months off, or in between jobs, or if you're consulting, to have um, long holidays within within your working life, so that you don't leave it all until the end of the day. It's not for everybody, but as a concept, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I can only agree. Because I know the person that recommended that book to you. Was it you? <laughs> it was because I think I'm Tim Ferriss's original fan. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really, I'm really pleased. Yeah. I'm really See, pleased. that's an example. There was a guy who lived life to the full. Yeah, and still he does. Died, was it last year? No, no, still he's leaping around the place like a linty at the moment. He's he's an amazing guy. He's only in his forties. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's something similar then that, that was climbing Kilimanjaro and got killed on Kilimanjaro. No, it's not him. But I mean, but it is interesting this idea that it is interesting that the way you come to financial planning is the sort of saying, well, you can do this if you do that, and if you don't do that, you can't have it. Because that's that's not something you equate with a financial planner. You equate them saying, Well, I want a mortgage, and you're saying, Well, this is the one I've got, it's in blue, pink, or purple, which one would you like? And it seems it seems odd that you're involving yourself in all this freaky deaky stuff almost. It's yeah, not a criticism, it's just intriguing. Yeah, because I read a lot of that stuff and, and have studied a lot of stuff over the years and, and even down to studying things like neuroscience, which which is extremely powerful, if you, if we, which obviously is crossing over into your line of work, but you taught me a lot about things like neuroscience, but studying the way that people get conditioned to their current reality, which all sounds a bit airy-fairy, but it isn't, because people make a habit of working. I, I find one of the biggest problems is that 
uh, I talk to people about, there's two things going on here when you come to retire. There's emotion and logic. I said, and I often say to people, look, I can make this work logically, but the problem you will have is that you've been accumulating cash all of your life and working and putting money away. And all of a sudden, you've got to get used to the concept of burning the stuff. And I don't mean putting it on the argument. I mean actually spending the stuff so that you begin to run out. And then, then our job is to make sure that you run out the day before you die so the last check you ever write bounces. And I find my experience, because they've got conditioned and, and, and their neuroscience is such that they, they're conditioned to carry on as they are and change, you know, as well as I do, that change is difficult for people. Their, their systems, their neuroscience, their neuro, neurological systems rebel against change because people don't like change. They like their habits and so on. So it is an issue. Uh, for for people to get into a new way of living, which is retirement and not working and so on. My experience, and this is purely empirical, is it takes about two years for people to settle down to the idea that they don't need to work anymore. Yeah. And this is why lottery winners famously famously have all sorts of te- have all sorts of terrible problems, don't they? Mm, all sorts of problems. They're not, they're not used to it. They're not used to having any money, especially the people who are impoverished to start with. They they don't know how to deal with having money. No, and it, it fries their brains. It literally fries their brains because their brains, uh, and, and to the credit of the lottery, um, I can't remember who runs the thing, um, they have advisors that are specifically trained to deal with lottery winners. So, so to their credit, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. So, so really, then, financial resilience is about. Um, if I could put a finger on it, and, and, and I'll ask you to, to tell me if this is right, because we talk about resilience as about as about bouncing back from something difficult that's happened. And what you're saying is, it is always possible to bounce back, but you've got to be sane about the way you think about the financial impact of bouncing back from something. Yes. And yes. When, uh, you you need to know. You need to completely and utterly understand how much you spend. You need to completely and utterly understand what you've got in terms of current investments, incomes, and so on. And then, then you need to be realistic about what that's going to give you. And then you need to think about what is the end goal? What's the end game? What do I want this stuff to do? And then you need to be willing to do what it takes to, to, to be able to achieve that outcome. And then obviously there'll be, be somebody like me in the middle, hopefully, that will, that will help you with that. Yes. And, and you're not particularly advocating that everybody has to come rushing and beating your door down because you recognise that actually good financial advice is um, available in many places and you've actually talked about the, the sort of process to find a good financial planner anyway, so that's great. But you were telling me, or you mentioned something earlier about some sort of tool that you, you use. What's, what's that all about? And is that something... Uh, tell me about it, first of all, and I'll ask you questions well, about it. It's becoming much more common to use financial planning software. But the problem with it is that there are, and I know for a fact that there are lots of people who have have the financial planning software out there, which is a a cash flow modeling tool. A lot of people out there use it, and there are plenty of advisors that use it very well, plenty of advisors that use it well and, and use it properly. But there are plenty of people that just plug all the data in and say, well, here you go or they don't know how to use it and apply it properly. Uh, it's getting better, it has to be said, but there are, I have no basis for saying this in fact, but I, I reckon there are probably less than a thousand advisors that are very, very good at using financial planning software, and that might be a bit contentious, but I don't actually care. I go to enough seminars and talk to enough advisors 
um, where they're still in their ivory towers. Oh, we just talk about investments. Or I just, I'm sorry, I just don't buy it. Okay, so um, so that's interesting. So, is that something that's freely available, or do you have do you have to have in, you know some started some sort of engagement with you, or is that on your website? How, how does that work? If I well, our, our software we use the most complex piece of kit on the market, which is a lot of people, a lot of advisors don't really like it because it, it's it is complex. It's the most complicated piece of kit, but there's other pieces of kit out there that are more basic. You can go on. There's some some websites where you can go and do a basic financial plan yourself yeah. so and I, I have no issue with people with people use one piece of software or the other but as long as the fundamental principles of what outcome do you want do you want to retire and, and, and to really ask big questions and the big questions are oh uh, a couple of my favorite questions you've got 24 hours left to live what would you regret not having done yeah. another question which is fantastic for, for listeners to think about is these came from a guy called George Kinder, who's one of the fathers of this type of financial planning. He wrote a book called The Seven Stages of Money Maturity, which is a good work. And one of his questions I like is, you go to the doctor and you say to the doctor, what's the result of my test? And the doctor says, well, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. So you say, well, okay, what's the bad news? And the doctor says, well, unfortunately, you will definitely die within five and 10 years from now. And you say, right, okay, well, what's the good news? And the doctor says, well, in between now and when you die, which will be definitely be between five and ten years from now, and you will just drop dead instantly, up until that moment, you will be completely and utterly healthy. So the question then is, you've got between five and, years, five and ten years left to live, you'll be completely healthy, somewhere between five and ten years, you will drop dead instantly. What would you do differently? How would you live your life differently? Right. That's a great question. That's a great question. So you ask people that one, and they suddenly start to think differently. Yeah, they suddenly start to think. Actually, I really would. I've had people buy grand pianos, um, go and learn to fly. They've learned to play instruments and all that kind of stuff. So even down to things like flower arranging. The guy that my client who built the microlight, he loved taking pictures of aircraft. And going off to, and he enjoyed going to Beauty Motor Museum, so he bought himself a nice SLR and took photographs of some amazing classic cars. It's not the most expensive hobby in the world, but him working where he did in a job he hated meant he couldn't do it. So this is really important stuff. Those are, are really big questions. And it is interesting you're talking about this because you know we talk a lot elsewhere on the site and on course and things about nutrition and health and health and, and difficult diseases and such like. And there's an absolute correlation between now what you know how we treat ourselves, how we look after ourselves, the amount of healthy lifespan we have, and now you're adding into that mix. Well, you know, do you have the money to to live the way you'd like to live? And if yeah. you don't, if you don't get a grip of your own life, there's nobody else going to do it for you, is there? No. No. Me, now, there's, now, Patrick, there's one thing that's been worrying me as we go through this um, chat, chat. Maybe worry is too strong, but you know. At what stage do I need to be worried about financial planning? I mean, for example, if I'm, um, I don't know, I don't know if I work in retail and I, earn, and I earn slightly less than I spend every month, do I need a financial planner? Or do I need to have a certain amount of net worth or a certain amount of assets to make the most of you sort of guys? What's the point where you become most relevant to us? Well, the, the, one of the problems of our industry was on the 1st of January 2013, commission was banned. Right. Now, the regulator, and, and I get where they're coming from, 
so the regulators said, oh, well, you must be able to um, see very, very clearly what you're buying. So you must have competition and you must have transparency charges. And I get that. The problem was, and the regulator, the financial conduct authorities said they issued a paper which was talking about unseen, um, unforeseen consequences to which the industry just giggled to itself and said, well, really? Because what happened was that a lot of the banks withdrew from giving financial advice. So HSBC, Barclays sacked great swathes of, of advisors because people didn't, individuals didn't want to pay a minimum of 500 quid for any kind of financial advice. So the availability of advice is now really restricted. And, and it's, going to, it's not a particularly pleasant term, but the industry calls them the great, the great unwashed. Mm. And these are people who can't afford somebody like myself. So unfortunately, you're looking at things like the money advice service, which has now been withdrawn, isn't it? It's now called something else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the availability of that kind of advice is, is, is very, very limited. So you're sort of penal. It's, it's hard to make money if you don't have it in the first place. It's one of those, right. you know, real dilemmas. I mean, do you do you do you watch things like money, Martin Lewis, and Money Setting Expert, and things like that? That seems. I, I don't watch them. I've got a huge amount of time for Martin Lewis. I yeah. think he's a really, really top bloke, and I really like um, the BBC's Money Box program. I, can't, I don't know. I can't remember the name of the guy. journalist, but he's a really top guy. Yeah. <clears throat> he asks some really, really good questions. Really, really good common sense. And um, there's some very, very good resource out there that you can go and look at. I think, I think Martin Lewis is fantastic. Moneybox is superb. Uh, there are plenty of podcasts. On, I think go on, on to Tuned In Radio, and you can go and get the Moneybox programs there for nothing, yeah. uh, which is very good. There's plenty of online resource. So but unfortunately, paying some professional like myself yeah. is, is out of the reach of many people. Yeah. So I know, I know you have some free resources on, online as well, and, and a free book. And, um, yeah, oh, we got all of that stuff. So, yeah. so if people would like to sign up to a newsletter, how how can they how can they find you? How can they do that sort of thing? Oh, it's this time for a plug. It's um, www.fpp-ifa.co.uk. If people want to come and talk to us, they, they, they we always do an initial meeting without sending them a bill. And whenever I see a new client, even if they don't use us, I will always give them two or three ideas that will save them money. Right. Always. We can always save people money, and it's, it's very, very straightforward. Tax has become so complicated, and with all the new pension freedoms that have come in, I reckon about 50% of our work now is tax planning. Really? It's using all of the tax allowances. I reckon at least half of our work is tax planning because it's just crazy all the things that you can do to save money. Right. And this is legal. This is legal tax planning. Not tax we, we don't get involved in anything that's the least bit contentious. Not There's no point. There's no need. Number one is HMRC uh, have uh, the tax man to you and I have issued. I seem to remember a figure of five billion pounds worth of things called APNs or advanced payment notices. Yes. And these have been issued to people like Andrew Gerrard, um, Alex Ferguson, footballers, actors, Jimmy Carr. Uh, all of these sorts of people that have got involved in various tax schemes, computer contractors have been issued with lots of these advanced payment notices. And these have all been around tax schemes that have quite frankly failed. There's no need. There's no need. And, and the revenue are clamping down on all of these types of schemes. Our advice is don't bother. Do what's legitimate. And there's plenty of stuff that you can do that's legitimate. Pay your taxes and then you can sleep at night. That's, that's our philosophy. Yeah. Right. Wow. 
I mean, I've just looked at the time and I've seen it whiz past, and this has been amazing. I think it's been a really good introduction to the linkages between what we talk about and what you talk about. And I think, I think, um, I think there's some brilliant takeaways there, Patrick. Yeah, hopefully we, we'll have to do another one and then drill down to some more specific ideas. Well, now you're volunteering, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's certainly we could do shorter podcasts, but there's certainly some ideas. For example, around new pension freedoms, there's loads of little ideas. You can literally make money out of the amount of revenue. And I often use the expression with clients, it is money for old rope. There are so many ideas that you can use where you can literally help yourself to money out of the tax system that you didn't contribute. It's, it's, it's quite a giggle, actually, what you can do. It's a deal. We'll, we'll book that date. And um, if people have questions, they can email them into us and then we can get a nice stock of them for you and um, see where we take it. Okay. Patrick, it's been an, an absolute joy. I knew it was going to be um, a brilliant experience talking to you, so thanks ever so much. And we'll Thank be in so touch much. very, very soon and we'll get that second podcast underway. Okay. Take care. Okay. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found some value. Um, there are lots of other podcasts in this series, lots of different speakers, tools and techniques and subjects. So please subscribe and see what else might be helpful for you. Um, it would be smashing if you could pop across to iTunes and drop us a review. As I said earlier, we've got tons of information on our sites, lots of free goodies, ebooks, webinars and such like, uh, as well as some uh, online courses and specific coaching, sometimes from some of the speakers you've heard on these podcasts. So hope to uh, have your company again on the next edition of Resilience and Bad Bye now.